began in this series by asking ourselves that very strategic question, is God still speaking today? And the reason why I think some of us sort of, sort of quibble with that, with that question is because, you know, some of us have never heard the audible voice of God. And because we have never heard the audible voice of God, we have a tendency to somehow believe or think that God doesn't speak the way that he did in the past. Or maybe we have somehow concluded that God is not speaking at all. So we must then ask ourselves, is God speaking? And if he is, then how does he speak? In which ways does he speak? And in what methods does he speak? And we're going to be answering that question to this series. And if, in fact, God is speaking, the question then that we need to ask ourselves is basically this. Do I want to hear what God has to say? Do I want to hear what God has to say? Because, quite frankly, there are times in each of our lives in which we know that we're not walking with God. And so we're basically not wanting to be receptive of that which God is wanting to speak into our lives. Or God may be speaking in a, in a direction that we don't want to go or in an area that we don't want to deal with or revealing something that we would rather push to the side and put off for another day, for another time. God is speaking. And if we are to follow in the footsteps of Christ, it's imperative that we as disciples of Christ listen for when God speaks he is not only inviting us to follow him, but he is inviting us now to communicate with him on a personal, intimate, love relationship level so that we in that intimacy can not only know him, but hear him and follow him. So are you listening today? I'm going to begin this series by sort of prefacing a passage in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and verse 2, in which we're going to sort of use this passage as a springboard to the study that we're going to be studying for the next several weeks. It's a passage in which God has inspired the Apostle Paul to write this incredible truth. The central idea of this text is basically this, Christ is supreme. He stands supreme above all of the prophets. And that Jesus Christ in his supremacy is not only greater than the angels, but Christ is the final revelation of God to man. He is the final revelation. And the fact that we see in this text where God speaks to us in Christ, the final revelation, so that we then might know him, so that we then in turn might be able to follow him. Let's look at the text. Stand with me in honor of God's word in Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verses 1 and verse 2 together. And since it's a small text, I'm going to ask us all, if we can, to look at the screen and let's read it together. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm ready. How about you? All right, let's read it together. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Father, I pray that as we stand in honor of your word this morning, that you would speak clearly today in this very sacred place. You have spoken so many times, and we have heard you, but there have been many more times in which you have spoken realities into our lives, and we have either turned a deaf ear or we have been so, so distracted by so many other voices that we have failed to hear you speak into our lives. 
Lord, you don't need permission from us to speak into our lives today. You are God. We are your creation. And we pray and we ask that as you speak, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that would be filled with your word today, so that as you speak and communicate into our lives, we would not only hear, but we'd be attentive to that which we understand. Lord, speak through this text, speak through your servant, communicate to us through your spirit, through the revelation of your son Jesus, through his word, life-changing, life-transforming truth. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We, uh, we went the other day with uh, Matt and Jamie and their four children to the twins' first soccer match or first soccer game. Now, they are twins, and if you don't know them real well, they look like they're identical, but they're not. And they're little toeheads, they're small, and they're as beautiful as all get out, but they're very, um, very much like their grandmother, Patty. And uh, so uh, we went to the first soccer match, and it was hard to get everybody ready because they have four children, and there's two of them, and there's two of us. So there's, there's a large group of people trying to cram into one uh, SUV, into my SUV, because it has the middle seat. And so we can cram everyone in there, and we're trying to get all the stuff. Caden, who is seven, also had an upward basketball game, and so we had that as well that morning. So it was a very busy time for a Saturday morning family. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you have related to that recently as a grandparent, and some of you have not related to that as long as you can't remember anymore. Kids are much more active today than they ever were when we had children. Can I get an amen to that? They're very busy. But anyway, so we got all of the cleats and all of the pads and all of the shin guards and all the stuff, making sure that all the jerseys, and because Matt, my oldest son, is the coach, he has an assistant coach, now, it's a very status thing to be the coach of a five-year-old soccer team of girls, of girls, not girls. And so, anyway, so here we go, and we're all piled in this car, we're going, we get to the soccer field, and it's in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and there are millions of people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's a large metropolitan area. Thank you, Lord, that I live in Wichita, Kansas. It's a great place to live. I don't want to live anywhere else, especially in that sea of humanity. But we, we got to this large complex, and there are literally maybe, I don't know, 50 to 100 different soccer fields. Thousands of people. Children in strollers, children barely walking, children running everywhere. You got to be careful to find a parking place. You got to fight for that. You got to get out, get all the gear. Obviously, we parked like a 300 yards from the place that we were supposed to go. And so we're tranching all of us, you know, there. And we finally get there. There's another game. And, and I noticed that when our son got his little team together, he was beginning to teach them to listen to him. He got these little people together, and he was instructing them by watching the game that was before theirs that was still going on, what they were doing wrong and what they were doing right. And he separated the children from the parents of the grandparents. And so they were over there watching, and he was coaching. It's their first game, and some of these girls have never played soccer before. And so it's important that he establishes that connection. When the game started, you know the drill on this side of the field, all of the parents and all the grandparents. And some of these people, they know how to do this well. 
You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they come with uh, coolers that they carry with wheels, and they got all kinds of equipment and gear, and everybody's got their own chair, and it's got a little cup holder, and man, they're set. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I get there. I don't have any of that. I'm just kind of standing. You know what I'm saying? I- I'm not well-equipped. I'm not well-prepared. But And so all of the parents on both sides, uh, Matt's team and, and our girls' team on this side, and, and the opponent on this side, and there's this large number of people, parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts, children, noisy. And the game starts. Now, I don't know what kind of parent or grandparent you are. How many of you are the silent type? Anybody? One, maybe two. How many of us would honestly say, I am not the silent type? Yeah, that's what I thought. Now, when I, played, when I played ball in high school, you could hear my mom's voice over anyone else's. They watched this broadcast, so here's what she sounds like. Charlie! Charlie! I used to go, oh, Lord. It was, a, it was a horrific sound, and it towered over everyone else. Sorry, Mom, but so at my mom and my dad are there as well. And so there's a large number of us, and... Uh, And so as the game begins, parents on both sides are doing what? Trying to coach their child. And they're trying to get their child's attention. Now, I noticed that Matt is on the opposite side of the field where there are no parents. There's no one. Why would he be over there? Because he wants to be the solo voice on that side of the field so that he can teach the girls to listen to that side of the field for instructions. Right? Now, the parents and the grandparents and uncles and aunts and great-grandparents who are there are cheering and they're yelling and they're instructing. They all mean well. They all have good intentions. And they're all screaming different directions and different things that they want their beloved child or grandchild or great-grandchild or niece to do. But there's one voice that must be heard over everyone else's, and that is the voice of the head coach. And so he distanced himself from them, and he was teaching them in the first game, look to the opposite side of the field for instruction. Now, I thought about that. That's a lot like the world we live in, isn't it? There are a lot of competing voices from the main voice that we need to be hearing. And many times those voices are leading us in opposite direction from that which the coach designed. But there are times when those voices have well-meaning intentions. They, they encourage, they want to lead, they want to push us, they want to give us attaboys, and they want us to tell us, run and be over here and be over there. But there's only one voice that we must hear because there's only one voice that we must answer to, and that is the voice of God. And so here we come to this time as a disciple. In a world filled with distracting voices, some not well-intended, some very well-intended, but there is basically one voice that we must listen for, and that is the voice of God. And so I want to take a look at an old passage way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, where we see five very important truths that help us understand when God speaks 
What does he desire from us? What does he want from us? And these five principles, these five truths will come in handy as we seek then as disciples to follow in the footsteps of Christ to hear from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Point number one, when God speaks, he displays his sovereign power. When God speaks, he displays his sovereign power. Now notice in Genesis 1, beginning with verse 3. Notice how many times we see God speaking for the first time in the record of the Bible. This is the first record we have of God actually speaking words. And God said, he spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Notice the words, and it was so. Say that with me. And it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. Say it with me. And it was so. And God said, let there, let the lights, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And God said, let the waters swarm the swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Let's say it together. And it was so. When God spoke, it was so. Notice the authority of the spoken word of God each and every time in Genesis 1 when he spoke, it was so. That is an incredible authoritative spoken word that each and every time the sovereign God who has all power, he is omnipowerful, he speaks, it is so. In the beginning, there was nothingness and God literally spoke into existence, all of creation. Think about that. With his words, he spoke into existence all of creation, all of the universe. And the idea and the concept here is that God didn't take a bunch of elements like we did in making breakfast this morning. I don't know what you had, but you took several things and you made breakfast. You didn't really make breakfast, did you? God, when he made the universe and he made all that we know in this universe and created life, he spoke out of nothingness. And when he spoke out of nothingness, everything was created. Everything out of nothing. He spoke it in the power and in the authority of his word. And it was so. That's powerful. That's amazing to me. No one else has the authority. No one else has the power in their spoken word to just make this kind of, of thing happen. And so Jesus, we see, as the living word, also has the same power as the Father. For as we saw not long ago, a couple of months ago, Lazarus, who was dead for three days, and he came in finally, Jesus on the scene, and he stood before the tomb, and after praying to the Father, he spoke. 
And by the power and the authority of his spoken word, he said, Lazarus, come forth. What happened? That dead body was returned to life, and he rose from that position of the grave, and he hobbled out, and Jesus commanded, let him loose. The spoken word of the Father and the spoken word of the Spirit and the spoken word of the, of the Son has power to resurrect dead bodies and to breathe life into that which is dead. What does that sound like to you? Salvation. Salvation. The paralytic who was there and he, when Jesus came on the scene, he looked at the paralytic in his condition, recognizing that the reason he was in that condition was because of sin. And Jesus spoke into that man's life and by the power of his spoken word, he said to that man, your sins are forgiven. What happened to that man's sins? We're gone. He was forgiven. By the power of the spoken word of Jesus, his sins were gone. And they got upset. The, the religious elite did and said, you can't do that. He said, yeah, I can. He said, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? And to demonstrate who he was, he looked at the man and he says, it was spoken word, rise and walk. And what happened? He rose and he walked. When Jesus was with his disciples out on the sea and the storm was beating and all of a sudden they were in fear of their lives, Jesus stood in that prominent place and he said, be still. And what happened? It was still. The spoken word of the Lord is a powerful word. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to underestimate the power of the spoken word of God and his son, and his spirit. The sovereign, authoritative power of the spoken word of God who called you unto himself. And when you responded to that call, he breathed new life into you and he forgave your sins and he put you back on your feet and he told you what he told the lady after he said, you without sin cast the first stone. What did he say? Go and sin no more. And the power of his spoken word enables us and empowers us to live the life that he calls us to live. When God speaks, he not only displays the power of his word, but secondly, he also then desires to fulfill his sovereign purpose. There's a sovereign purpose that God has when he created us. For God did, in essence, create us. Why did he create man? Not because he was lonely. God wasn't lonely in heaven. He created us to give him glory. That is the purpose for which we were created, to glorify our creator, to glorify the Son, and to bring glory to the Spirit. We were created to glory, not because God has some huge ego or because God needs us to glorify him, because he lacks the glory that is necessary, but he simply created us for the specific purpose of glorifying him. And in order to make that a reality so that we might glorify him, Notice what happens in the text in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, the second record of God speaking, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
You notice it says, let us. God is kind of having a conversation, not with himself, but he's having a conversation with the Son and the Spirit. The three are conspiring together. As this creation thing is a collaboration of the three, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the three are having a, cre- a discussion in the fact of this creation. And as a result of that, we see then that in this discussion, they say, let us make, let us shape, let us form man. Now, man is not only man, but it's also female. Don't you think about this, ladies? He's not just talking about man because God created you as well. So I want you to understand and realize that you were created also as man in the likeness of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. For he created male and female in his image. Are you with me? I ask you, are you with me? Are you with me? A little bit of discretion today, but that's okay. Let us make male and female, how? In our own image and in our likeness. The word image and likeness is a huge theological discussion that we don't have time for this morning. But in a nutshell, let me tell you what image and likeness simply means. It means, first of all, God created us to be like him. That's really all it means. We were created like him. You can make more of that than you should, and you can make less of that than you should. And when they read this, I believe they understood he created us like him. Now, we're not created equal to him, but we are created similar to him. We're not gods. We're not equal to God, yet we are created in his image, in his likeness, in his similarity. But we are also, I believe, created to represent God on the earth. Now, to help us understand what that means, let me just tell you about a tweet that I saw Aaron the other day. He wrote, it was a couple of weeks ago, Aaron, my youngest son, who's about to be married in a couple of weeks, uh, up in Canada, church planner, if you don't know him, he's been here several times. He's our third. He is our perfect child. Took us three to get it right. They did. Uh, I mean, he was born an adult. He, 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 anyway, Aaron the other day, though, did something that uh, I found wasn't quite perfect. He tweeted something about me. Now, I know you're going to have a hard time believing this, but this is what he tweeted. He tweeted, you're not, uh, he said, what, let, me, let me think of exactly what he said. He said, hard to imagine what I did today not only reminded me of my dad, but said, I'm becoming like him. My son is becoming like his father. How many of you would agree with me that we are becoming like our parents? How many would you say my spouse is like my mother-in-law or my father-in-law? Anybody here want to be brave enough to say that? Uh, You probably won't have lunch today, Brother Larry. Isn't it interesting that as we grow older and as we begin to do things, we not only remind ourselves of our parents, but that that reality begins to sink in. I'm similar to my parents. Yuck. Because those idiosyncrasies that we did not want to emulate or to be like, we find have a way of sneaking into our lives and we find ourselves doing things that not only remind us of them, but Give us that, that, that reality, oh my soul, I'm becoming like my dad, or I'm becoming like my mom. Why? Because we are similar to them. They birthed us. They raised us. 
And so we are becoming similar to them. That, that is what this whole thing means. We are becoming, and we were made, similar to him. And we are in the process of becoming more and more similar to him as we trust Jesus as our Savior. For you see, we are all fallen creatures, are we not? That because of the sin of one man, we all became sinners. And though we're created in his likeness and in his image, that fallenness, that sin nature, while we're like him, is no longer like him in some ways. We don't think his thoughts. We don't feel his feelings. We don't say the things we should say. We don't see the things we should see. We don't hear the things we should hear. And that sin nature then distorts the image and the likeness of Christ. But Colossians chapter 3.10 and 2 Corinthians 3.18, we learn in the text in many other places that we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus through faith in his son. You see, when we came to faith in Christ and we placed our trust in him as our savior, we were, we were given a new life. And in that new life, we were given a new path. And in that new path, we were then being now conformed. We are being reshaped. We are being sanctified into the likeness of our original creation, like him. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Now, I know you'd be, you're probably thinking to yourself, you know, I just saw a reflection of myself in the mirror this morning, and I don't look anything like him. I'm well aware of my sinful condition and my depravity and my humanity, my shortcomings, my weaknesses. But if you look back in the rearview mirror and analyze your life when you came to faith in Christ and the progress that you've made, hopefully you'll be honestly be able to say, you know what, in humility, not in pride, I've made some, some moves toward him. I'm more like him today than when I was yesterday. For as we mature and grow in Christ, he molds us, shapes us, and then continues then to fulfill his purpose, which won't be complete, by the way, until glorification. For one of these days, he will transport us into heaven, and when we stand before Christ, who will we be like? Who will we be like? Jesus. Not until then. That final work will happen in heaven. And what a glorious day that's going to be. But until then, we're being perfected. We're being sanctified. We are moving into the likeness and the image of Jesus. We see in God's spoken word not only to display his sovereign power and fulfill his sovereign purpose, but notice he defines his sovereign plan or his perimeters. Notice in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man. You, he commanded the man. I'm going to have to man up, man. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave Adam a responsibility to tend and to care for the garden. I think sometimes we have a tendency to convey that part of the curse was that now we have to work. That wasn't a part of the curse because even prior to Adam and Eve sinning against God, God commanded, he gave Adam the responsibility to go in the garden and to tend to the things in the Garden of Eden. Not sure what he tended to, but what he tended to brought him great delight. 
That was his responsibility. But in that garden, as they enjoyed all that the garden had to offer provided by God, not only was there a responsibility to Adam to tend to the garden, but there then was a restriction. God said, you can eat of anything that's here, but you can't eat from that tree. That's the restriction. Can't eat from that tree. And here we see that God defines perimeters when he speaks. Every time and each time we open the Bible, it's interesting to me how many parameters, how many, how many, how many standards God elevates that he demands and he defines for us to live up to. You notice that? Just when I think I've got it together and just when I think I've got it just right and just when I think I've made enough progress and, and just when I look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm looking more like Jesus today than I did yesterday, all of a sudden I open the Bible and God's word jumps out and he speaks to me and he says, Charles, you're not there yet. There's a parameter, there's a standard that you're not living up to and who is that standard? The standard is Christ. Romans 3.23 says, for the wage of sin is death, uh, that's 623. Romans 323 says, For all have sinned, I'm sorry, for all have sinned and fallen short of the standard or the glory of God. Who's the standard? Jesus, the final revelation of the Father to humanity. Jesus is the standard. Why is he the standard? He's perfect. He lived perfect. And we are to strive for perfection while it is not attainable on this side of heaven. It is still our intent and God's design for us to strive, to move. Why? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. I know we're saved by grace through faith in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the free gift of God. I get it. And that my, my, my holiness and my, my living according to the commandment is not going to gain me any more favor or going to gain me access to God because we're not saved by works. And yet I have a work ethic that says that I must obey his commandments. Why? Because I love him, because I am loyal to him, because I want to follow him. I seek and I desire to live up to his standard. I can't tell you how many times I have argued with my kids when I have set the standard as a parent to say this is the standard, and they have said, I don't like the standard, I won't live up to that standard. And they've rebelled and resisted, haven't they? I've seen that even as a grandparent. I don't like to set standard for grandkids because that's not what grandparents are supposed to do. We want them to love us and to like us and be the fun people. I've already told you that's the reason why I like living in Wichita and only visit them about every eight weeks because the couple of days we're there in Matt's home, I can let them do whatever they want and be the fun grandparent. But there have been times that they've gotten older when I've had to say, you can't do that. And they look at me with those eyes that say, you ain't the boss of me. And yet I am because I'm the father of their father. The world we live in doesn't like God's standards. They want to reset the standard. They want an alternative Jesus. They don't like what the word of God and the words of God dictate and define as his standard. God's old. His standards are old. This is a new day, a new era, a new society. There's a new standard. No, because God is the same yesterday that he is today and tomorrow. And his standard never changes. 
and his commandments are the same. He's a consistent God. And he calls us as his children, as the creator, as the sovereign Lord, who has all the right to say, here's my standard. Like it or not, (coughs) this is how you live. So when he speaks, he defines his standard. Secondly, fourthly, when he speaks, he demands personal accountability. I've already mentioned the fact that when we open the Bible, sometimes the Bible jumps out and, 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 and reveals in my life things that shouldn't be there or things that need to be implemented. And we all have a tendency to do exactly what's happening here. Because up until now, we see that Eve finds herself in Genesis chapter 3 in the first seven verses, finds herself grocery shopping, maybe for lunch or dinner. We're not sure which one. But by herself, she's shopping for, for the things that she's going to prepare for, for Adam. You know, at the table that day, he's out tending, he's out working, he's out mending things in the garden, doing whatever he's supposed to be doing, finding joy and delight in that. She's gathering the grocery. You know, I can see her in Dylan's pushing the cart. And she comes up to that place called the Forbidden Tree. And she stops. There's an exchange between her and An unlikely sword, his name is Satan, disguised as a serpent, and they enter into a discussion that leads to a doubt. It it leads to disbelief. There's an uncertainty about, did he really say that? And there's a temptation on her part to become like God. And, And we could talk about all of that, but that's for another time, another place. And she then finds herself longing too long at something she should not long for, looking at it too intently, finally losing control. And losing it for all of us. Making the choice and putting it in her basket. I can see probably Eve as she was continuing in the shopping list that she had. You've done this and put it back. Finally she gets home and she, she makes for the first time the first apple pie. The first apple pie. I know why you're grinning. April and I have a thing going. She, a couple of weeks ago, she put an apple down on her desk, and I walked by and took a bite of it and put it so she couldn't see the bite out of it. She picked it up, and the bite was there. I've done that twice now. Yes. She offered me a, an apple the other day, the bite that she had taken out of it, and I said, no, thank you very much. But uh, made the first apple pie and served it to Adam. It was a la mode. Did you know in heaven they had a fountain where there was bluebell ice cream there? She went and got some of that, put that on that nice warm pie. Adam said, what's this? Oh, that's that forbidden fruit. You won't worry about that. Go ahead, eat it. And he eats it. Uh-oh. They look at each other and say, hey, sweetie, did you for- you're naked. Well, you're naked. We're naked. And they were ashamed of their nakedness. Notice what happens in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How, How naive of them, isn't it? The Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? Notice he's speaking. He's asking as he's communicating. Where are you? I wonder if he's ever done that to you. In your sin and in your shame, you have sought to hide from the presence of God, and yet God in his sovereignty has sought you out, and he's seeking you out, and he's asking you, he's calling you by name, where are you? Why have you deserted me? Why aren't you out here? Where are you? 
And then Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was ashamed of my nudity, of my, my, my exposure. I knew I had sinned and I didn't want to reveal myself. And God says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? He already knew that. He's wanting confession from Adam. Yet Adam said, the woman that you gave to me with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. You know the the story. Not me. She did it. We need to man up, guys. We're the leaders in our homes, not our wives. And we'll stand accountable first to God for our families and our leadership. And there have been many a man who, have, who has circumvented his role as the leader to an over-boisterous wife who takes command when there's a lack of leadership, spiritual leadership from her husband. And we're going to be held accountable for that. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? Notice she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Where's personal accountability here? I mean, Satan did hold a gun to their head and demand that they take it and eat it. God created them with the freedom to choose and they made the choice. Adam chose to eat what Eve prepared and Eve had already made the choice to take it at the suggestion of the serpent and so it was their choice. So where's the personal accountability? And I'm here to tell you that God's word, each and every time we open it, it speaks into our lives and it demands personal accountability every time. You cannot open and hear God speak and say, it ain't for me. It's not my fault. David, when he was confronted with Nathan, after having sinned with Bathsheba, thought he had concealed his sin. And God spoke through his prophet. And the prophet gave him a scenario. He said, there's two men, one incredibly wealthy with a lot of sheep, another only has one. And this one, this poor guy has raised this one sheep his whole life. They're very close. They're very connected. He loves this sheep and this sheep loves him. And and there's this relationship that's kind of weird, but there's a relationship there. You ever raised a cow or any other animal? There's a relationship. Some of you love your dog more than you love your family. I understand that. My parents have one like that. Treat the dog better than they ever did any of us. Yeah. I hope they live a lot longer than the dog. Dog's going to come to a real reality one of these days. And the guy that had all these sheep had a guest come over and he needed a lamb to be served as a meal. And he takes that beloved lamb, slaughters it, and offers it for dinner on that table that night. Nathan says, what do you think about that, king? David said, that man ought to be killed. And Nathan says, God speaks through Nathan, thou art the man. Conviction sets in. And he writes Psalms 51. And in that psalm, he says, I have sinned. It's a hymn of confession. You see, it ain't my brother, it ain't my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, who's standing in the need of forgiveness. We must look in the mirror and recognize that the Word of God holds us personally accountable each and every time. And isn't it great to know that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, how do you know that? 
Because when he speaks, you are forgiven, it's done. It's so. And then lastly, notice when he speaks, he delivers unbiased judgments. Unbiased judgments. We're going to close with this. There are unbiased judgments. Notice the judgments. Notice the discipline that takes place upon Adam and Eve and upon us because of their choice to sin. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I was talking to Patty about this coming down here. Ladies, that's why there's pain in childbirth. But not only is there pain described here, but there's a place described for you, and that is to be the homemaker, to be the bearer of children, to be the nurturer of the child. But notice also there's a position here in which God then directs to all women for all times that now you are to be over your husband's leadership. He now is to be the leader in the family. That is God-ordained. It's not man-appointed. Men don't treat your wives like doormats either. That's not a good thing to do for the Bible says that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And leadership, first of all, calls for sacrifice and service, not just dictatorship and lordship. You hear what I'm saying? Then he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Wow. He's going to work as he worked before, but this time he's not going to be joyful about the work because there's toil, there's trial, there's tiredness and there's a little bit of thorns and thistles stuck in there weeds brother denny notice the final conclusion of the judgment he said therefore the lord in verse 23 god sent him out from the garden of eden to work the ground from which he was taken wow like a fallen angel's God took Adam and Eve out in the garden. He placed a guard there with a flaming sword. Left them now to live their lives in their own existence apart from the care and the provision they had in the garden and to suffer the consequence of their choice and the penalty of sin. Because now the sin of one man, one man, Adam, We are all born sinners. And we are all left to suffer the same fate, the penalty of our sin before God. But thank be to God, the final revelation who is Jesus. John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the final revelation of man. If you read Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 and 6, he talks about Christ being the propitiation of our sin and taking care of our sin before God. 
the lamb who is worthy to be slain. He took upon himself sin that he did not commit for us so that through faith in him, he can speak the words to us. Through faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And when he speaks, there's power in his words. So quickly, let me just have you, give you five things that I want you to reflect upon as we close. When God speaks, you need to recognize the power of his word. Never underestimate the power of the word of God. Number two, we need to reflect the purpose for which his word communicates. His purpose and the purpose of the words that he speaks into our lives is to mold us and shape us into the image and the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. He is moving us into maturity to become and to reflect a life exemplary, a life that's following Jesus. Thirdly, we're to receive then the plan that God has for us. The standard is the same. And we abide by that standard because we love him. Because we love him, we obey him. And by our obedience, we then demonstrate that we are his children. Because his children obey him. Because they know that he's the father. And he has authority over their lives. We then must realize there's personal accountability. When God speaks, when God speaks, he's going to hold us accountable for what he speaks. He'll hold you accountable for what he says. He's going to hold you accountable for what you know. He's going to hold us accountable for how we live and how we obey that which he speaks into our lives. You can blame others and you can blame society. You can blame something that happened in the past. You can look for all kinds of reasons to justify who you are and what you are doing. But I'm here to tell you that you will stand personally accountable, toe-to-toe, with Jesus and give an account. And when you do, keep in mind that his judgments are always perfect. They're always perfect. They're always righteous. They're always right on track. Now, for some of us, that judgment's not going to happen until much later on. But while we're here, there's one thing I want to leave you with. Say, so, well, judgment's not until much later on. That's true. But listen to the discipline that happens to rebellious children. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Not on the screen. I want to leave you with this thought to chew on spiritually during the week. To massage it in your heart. Hebrews 12, 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is testing you as sons. For what son is there whom he, who his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are legitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Accountability, discipline, and judgment to all who are his children. I don't know about you, but my father disciplined me. 
And I used to hate the words that he said every time before I was uh, corrected on the backside. I love you, and this is good for you. I never understood those words until I became a parent. And I knew how difficult it was to discipline my own children. And how hard it was to keep a standard high and not to compromise and seek negotiation. But I'm glad I was the kind of parent that loved my kids enough to discipline my children because we're blessed to have the three children we have today and to see them become the parents that they are today, disciplining their children. Discipline's good, hard at the moment, but it pays off in the end. And whatever discipline, whatever judgment, whatever consequence comes our way, God is not only just, but his judgments and his discipline, they're good because they produce the fruit of righteousness in those that are his sons and his daughters. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.